So today we're starting a new series, as you've heard uh, several times. Um, and uh, yeah, as you said there, I think this must qualify as the Bible's most surprising book. I've spent a good chunk of the last two or three months swimming around in Ecclesiastes. And um, I'm not sure when I started that I had a category to put this book into. Um, I seem to remember once that in one of our kitchen drawers, we had, you know, you have weird things in your kitchen drawers. We, we had a small wooden mallet in our kitchen drawer. I don't think I've ever seen anyone use it. Um, and it was apparently for hitting meat in order to soften it. So the idea is you, the, the harder you hit it, the tenderer and the juicier and the more tastier the, the meat would become. I, I think, um, I've no idea where that mallet is. Maybe it was a wedding present that we never used. I don't know. It's not there now. But I think Ecclesi Ecclesiastes is like that mallet. It is a book that will hit you hard to do you good. Sometimes in life we need that, don't we? Ecclesiastes says things that I think we might feel, ouch, I'm, I'm not sure I want to hear uh, the, those things. It's blunt. But, but the weird thing, as I've been swimming around in this for the last couple of months, the weird thing is it, it, it doesn't feel to me like it's hardened me. It feels like it's softened me. Maybe layers of unhelpful things have been peeled off. And there's something about this book that's made my own faith in God warmer and simpler, childlike, confidence in a father who loves us. The author of the famous novel Moby Dick, a guy called Herman Melville, called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. I think what he meant by that, you know when you meet someone in life and you can tell when you talk to them that they've lived, maybe been through hard experiences and you, you feel instinctively that because they've known what it feels like to be sad, they face difficulties, that you can trust them, you can trust what they say, that they're not shallow or trivial. When, the, when, when they speak, it makes you kind of want to quietly listen because there, there's a wisdom there that's come from hard experience. I think Ecclesiastes is like that too because it faces reality. This is a book that we can trust. It talks about death, yes, but in a way that enables us to live in the way that we should. Let me uh, start by helping us get our bearings. The title of this book, Ecclesiastes, is not a word that we throw around in everyday talk, is it? Um, so where are we? You, you know that the Bible is not one book, but essentially a library of all kinds of different genres of books. And right in the middle, as we saw in the little video that we watched, right in the middle of the Old Testament, there are five books that have come to be known as wisdom books. We were thinking about three of them in a little video. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, and the Book of Job. 
The, these wisdom books are about life, success, relationships, our stuff, sex. The, these five books are all about how we experience life in this world. And the title of this one, Ecclesiastes, is important. Um, in Hebrew, uh, just uh, I'll, give me 30 seconds on there. In Hebrew, I've, I've got the clicker here. The title means teacher. The Hebrew word is the word koholeth. And it's right that it should be, this is a wisdom book. It's there in verse 1, the words of the teacher. This is a wisdom book. It's about teaching. That word teacher is this word koholeth. But you know how ancient words, sometimes they carry more nuanced meaning. This, this word doesn't just mean teacher. It implies a, a teacher who is gathering a group uh, around him or her in order to teach. There's something of that in the word. This, this is about groups being taught. A couple of hundred years before Jesus was born, the Old Testament in Hebrew was translated into Greek so that the rest of the world who weren't Jews could read it. And when it was, they picked this word, Ecclesiastes, to replace the Hebrew word. I don't know if you recognize the word Ecclesiastes. We, we get, sometimes we talk about ecclesiastical. It's like a churchy, ecclesiastical coach, ecclesiastical robes. We, we don't tend to wear them here. But that, the, the word Ecclesiastes is interesting. In the Greek, that word means gathering. And it's the word the New Testament uses to describe the church. The church is called in the New Testament Ecclesia. So this idea of teaching a group is kind of, the, the word Ecclesiastes has come into our English, but it, it, this idea of teaching a group So here, here's a picture that I think sums up Ecclesiastes for me. Um, there you go. Gareth Southgate, the England manager, gathering a group of players around him. What, what, what do you call this scene? It's a team talk, isn't it? The manager pulls his players together he looks into their eyes, and if they're not drinking from their bottles, they're looking into it as well. Some of them don't look interested, do they? But he's, he's, he's gathering the players around to inspire them, to enthuse them. And the fact that this teacher in this book is so blunt and so direct, he, he's a kind of no-nonsense coach. So I think, I think my summary of it, I've, I've called Ecclesiastes here. Oh, me, oh, there we go. The Bible's brutal team talk. The coach gathers his players. He's blunt with them. He's straight with them. And he's not coaching them to play football. This coach, this Koleth, this teacher is trying to inspire them to live life. What's the coach's message? You know, when you look at a book, 
sometimes on the back cover there's like a little section that's like it describes the summary of the book and it's like a plug isn't it to draw you in and uh, I think Ecclesiastes has something like that at the end um, just turn with me it'd be, it'd be good if you keep your finger on the pages here but just turn with me to the end to chapter 12 12 chapters here and you'll see the back cover um, there's two voices here from verse 1 of chapter 1 right through to chapter 12 and verse 8 the teacher is speaking I, I want you to notice actually verse 8 of chapter 12 because it's the same as verse 1 of chapter 1 it's, it's like it's like a, a bookend he starts and ends with the same sentence everything's meaningless that sounds like a dominant theme in the whole book but in verse 9 someone else begins to speak this is the publisher <laughs> giving you the blurb on the back of the book the coach stops talking and another commentator begins to explain what this book is about we're told here that this coach the teacher was wise we're told there in verse 9 that he imparted knowledge to the people his team and look at verse 10 it tells us there that this is not a random rant but this teacher spent time and energy finding just the right phrases putting the right words together in the right sentences to get his point across so this is a book that's carefully almost delightfully put together first of all in verse 11 the words of this teacher are described as goads what on earth is that a goad is a long stick with a very sharp point on the end of it and if you were a farmer you would use a goad to steer your cattle in the right direction it is quite literally used to give the cattle a prick up the backside that's the idea you're trying to make the cattle go in a certain direction you use a goad to prick them to make them walk in the right direction secondly in verse 11 that the, these sayings are described as firmly embedded nails I do love that as well this th this idea is something to do with being solid here, here, here is some here is teaching that you can hang your not just your hat on but your life on when I was a student we we, we just got married Jane and I and my father-in-law Jane's dad I was in awe of him as a young guy because he was really good at DIY and Jane's mum and dad came to stay with us in Birmingham we had a little flat and there was a cupboard essentially that I used as a little office it was literally a broom cupboard and I put some shelves up drilled holes put roll plugs in put shelves up and on the very night that they came to stay with us during the night there was a massive crash and this shelf fell down and all the books fell off 
And, the, and I was so, of all the days for it to fall down, when my father-in-law's there to see my rubbish DIY. When you think of this phrase, firmly embedded nails, this is a coach who isn't building rickety furniture that when you sit on it collapses. There's something solid about it. So I, what, 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 the, what the publisher's trying to say to us about this book is that the teaching is provocative and solid. It's sharp, yes, but you can hang your life on it. He's not being sharp to hurt them or crush them. He has their best interests at heart. He's writing to awaken them. Don't we need this, if we're honest? Isn't it true that sometimes we, I, need the proverbial kick up the backside? Is, isn't that true? And isn't it true that we long and yearn for some, that something that is solid, that we can live our lives on the basis of here is a book, friends, that is sharp and solid. And look again at verse 11, because we're told that these words are given. This coach is described as a shepherd. What that's meant to convey is that this coach loves his team. He has their best interests at heart. Sometimes, yes, he's blunt, and it pricks and sticks and convicts. But these words are given carefully and lovingly. Is, isn't this a great metaphor for what we're doing right now? I, I, I think you, you know that our church places a high priority on, on learning together from God's word but I, I'm not the coach. You, you, you know that I'm not the coach. We, we have a great, good shepherd who teaches us sometimes things that we don't want to hear, but always things that are for our good. Now, we're going to get into chapter one briefly today, but my summary, I suppose, of this book and, and chapter one, as we see, is this. Here is a coach who gathers his team and he looks them in the eye and he says, come on, guys, is this it? Stop pretending. I think this idea sums up the whole book. One Scottish author sums up this way. The teacher here wrote his book to smash into tiny pieces the idea that we can be like God. We aspire to have it all, to know it all, to do it all, to achieve it all, to be happy forever, to have all the answers, to never be left scratching our heads and to be remembered for all time. 
That's what we hope for, but what guarantee is there that we won't go under a bus tomorrow? If you knew what would happen to you tomorrow, how would you live today? That's the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. We imagine, don't we, that we're in control. We suppress the thought that we'll all die and we suppress even more that we don't know when that'll be. We distract ourselves by filling our lives, our time, our minds with all kinds of pursuits. We tell ourselves that things really matter without ever stopping to ask whether they should or even whether they really do. One of the weird things that I've learned about this book, though, is that it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting journey, this book, because I'm not sure, ironically, whether the teacher himself is pretending. The video alluded to it, two voices. This teacher seems to assume the perspective of a secular person. He starts where people are. And he speaks to us on our own terms. He doesn't preach at his team. He kind of starts where they are and takes them to the logical conclusion of their own beliefs and shows them what the end result of what they believe really is. It's almost like he's ironically pretending to be cynical. And so he sets off on this massive quest. He, he, he almost writes like a kind of ironic Superman. He, he writes as if he had resources that we can only dream of. This is a man who writes as if he had it all. He did it all. He tried it all. His passion and enthusiasm knows no limit. He climbs to the top of the tree. He asks all the hard questions that we do, but he takes them way further than we ever could. He describes life as it is in this world. And in the end, he finds it to be black and white, not color. In the end, the answers he's looking for elude him. Meaning slips through his fingers. Life seems disappointing, confusing. Despite his best efforts to grab life with both hands, it slips through his fingers. This is a guy who says, I've been there, I've done that. I've got the t-shirt and there's nothing there. He, this, is how he write, this is how he speaks to his gathered team. He begins his quest with a search for meaning. And doesn't it start with a miserable bang? No wonder this book's so popular. No wonder. I, I've never heard anyone preach from this book in my entire life, isn't that incredible? It starts with a miserable bang. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly 
meaningless. Everything is meaningless. We're going to say four things quickly to search for meaning. First of all, life is like a puff of smoke. In the old King James Version of the Bible, this verse is translated very poetically. You, you might know it. In the, in the old King James Version, it says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It, it made me wonder whether that's because it's hard to say meaninglessness of meaninglessnesses. So someone thought, let's use the word vanity. That's, that's more poetic. We, we alluded to it in the video that we watched. The word meaningless here is, is a strange word. And the book starts with this phrase. We've seen that the book ends with this phrase. It starts with this phrase and then a poem about the futility of life. And the book ends with a poem about the reality of death and growing old and ends with this phrase. The whole book is bookended by this phrase, meaningless. It appear, the word meaningless appears 37 or 38 times in the book. The word really means vapor or a breath or a puff of smoke. It conjures up the image of something that lacks any real substance. It's conveying the idea that life is fleeting transient and the author couldn't be more emphatic could he there's a lot of things in the bible that go like this holy of holies it's like it's the holiest thing this this phrase literally says vanity of vanities it's the pinnacle of vanity he says everything is utterly meaningless absolutely meaningless but he includes everything life relationships work politics food holidays joys sorrows his conclusion here all of it is not even a flicker on the surface of anything I'm, I'm so glad you could be here today to hear such an encouraging message. Secondly, I don't know if this is working. Are you doing it, Josh? Or I? You, you can do it. It'll keep you awake. Life, oh no, that's too far though. There you go. Life is a puff of smoke. Secondly, you can never make a profit. After this initial shocking statement in verse 3, just look with me at verse 3. The poem begins, and the teacher poses a great question with an implied answer. What does man gain from all his work? All that sweat, all the toil and effort, what does he get at the end? This is an accounting analogy. Generally, in business and in life, it's better to have a little more coming in than is going out. If, if that's not true, 
you're going backwards or, or bankrupt. This is the idea of having a little surplus left over. We call it profit. The, the writer here calls it gain. The idea is of surplus. So the question is, what surplus is there at the end of the day? Implied answer, none. All that work, you can't take any of it with you. Whether you get up early or, or late, it makes no difference in the end. I'm, I'm glad my teenage kids are not here. Sometimes they get up late and I'm not sure I want to hear that. <laughs> I want them to hear that. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You can get up early and spend your life working hard or you can lie until midday. In the end, it makes no difference because we all die and nothing we do will bring any ultimate gain. Whatever you do in life, one day, you will have nothing left. Thirdly, oh, go on, I, I did it, sorry. All action but no real progress. Let's get into this poem from verse 4. This teacher, this coach, paints a series of powerful word pictures of things that move but don't go anywhere. The first example is human population. So in verse 4, the teacher says, Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The idea here is that all of us come onto the world stage and exit the world stage and make no difference. For all of our restless activity, the mountains themselves stand there and mock silently our relentless busyness. The next three examples are all then observations from nature. The world of nature is characterised by the appearance of change that disguises actual sameness. So the sun seems to toil across the sky, huffing and puffing to get to its destination, only to have to do it all again the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And the wind too looks like this great mad commotion, all this activity, but when you analyze it more closely, it's basically just going round in circles. It's the same with water. It pours into the sea and the sea never gets full. The whole idea in this poetic analogy is that despite the appearance of progress, everything ends up where it started. From the north to the south, from the east to the west, from the top to the bottom, nothing is ever finished or completed. Every day is like Groundhog Day. Same old, 
same old, same old. And fourthly, here, life never feels complete. I love the way in verse 8 that the teacher moves on to express the psychology of this. And what he says there is that it's tiresome. It, actually, what he says is there are no words to describe how mind-numbing this repetitive, almost boring cycle is. The issue here, then, is one of never being satisfied. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear, its fill of hearing. We're always seeing, but our eyes are never full. We're always listening, but we can never hear it all. Our appetites are insatiable and yet never satisfied. And how relevant verse 9 and, and 10 is to our modern age. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. The teacher isn't saying that there's never been or will never be new inventions. But he is saying that nothing really changes. People don't change. What he's saying is that technology puts new clothes on old ideas. Different faces, different clothes, different places, but the same issues. Everything that is going on now has been going on for years and decades and centuries and nothing lasts you clean your house or your car and he's doing again tomorrow you have a haircut like I did this week six weeks from now I'll have to pay another ten quid and do it all again and make boring small talk with my barber are you going out tonight <laughs> where are you going on holiday I told you last time write it down <laughs> You wash the clothes, but the washing machine never really stops, does it? What a metaphor for life that is, the endless cycle. And in the light of this, friends, how we pretend. We pretend that new things will somehow make us emotionally fulfilled. Isn't it amazing how getting a new phone makes you feel like, ooh, And then it wears off like a drug and we need something else. <laughs> Maybe I'm just really materialistic. Perhaps you're more morally upright than I am. <laughs> there wasn't a flicker of a reaction there. But perhaps some people are not materially motivated. And some people might say, enough with all this talk of life being meaningless. I'm going to make sure that I live my life in a way that makes a positive difference to the world. I want to make a, a difference. I want to change the world. I want to make the world a better place. 
According to the coach, even this is a fantasy. Look at verse 11. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Even if you were famous, there will come a day when no one will remember you. Most people, we should do a poll, most people don't even know the names of their great-great-grandparents. Anybody? Not one. That probably means that your great-great-grandchildren won't remember you. Some of our Yorkshire-based grandparents used to have a saying I can't do it in a Yorkshire accent, but they used to say, as long as you've got your health. This teacher would take a ballistic missile to that, wouldn't he? And say, one day, you won't even have that. And he's right, because they're all dead now. The whole book is like this. We've got 10 weeks of this. Knowledge, work, leisure, relationships. The teacher concludes that all of it is like chasing after the wind. Utterly meaningless. Nothing is ever really gained. Nothing ever really changes. I've wondered as I've been preparing how you might react to this series. Some of you might be thinking, wahoo, this is the best series I've ever heard RECD. When my wife asks me to mow the grass tomorrow, I'm going to say, vanity of vanities. (laughs) You heard the pastor? You can forget it. And some of you, on the other hand, might be thinking, I was happy today until I came to church. Thanks a lot, I'm never coming back. Seriously, what do we do with this? Why on earth does God even give us this in the Bible? This coach, with his brutal team talk, What has he tried to do? He's tried to get us to face reality, isn't he? To stop pretending, to quit being in denial. But he's destroying so that he can build. He's cutting away all the silly, circular fantasies to replace them with something beautiful and lasting and true. There's one phrase here that is a massive clue to the teacher's ironic perspective. And it appears twice in this passage. It's there in verse 3. And it's also there in verse 9. But this phrase actually appears almost 30 times in 12 chapters. The teacher is speaking about life 
under the sun. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? This writer is honest, brutally honest, about the way this world actually really is. It is broken and frustrating and how we love to pretend and distract ourselves and tell ourselves that it, it isn't really. In our church here, we believe that because the Bible is the word of God, that actually this library that we call the Bible is one coherent story. And actually this book fits well with the rest of the word of God. This book tells us what things are like, but we learn why elsewhere. And here's the thing, the world is broken like this. Because we turn the good things that God gives to us into ultimate things. Our problem is not our environment. It's us. We push God away and we try to replace him with things that were never designed to and are not capable of fully satisfying us in the way that only God can. Whatever we replace God with will always disappoint us. We pretend that it won't, but it's a fantasy. It is a futile dream. And more than this, get this, we will never be able to love things or other people for what they are or who they are if we're, if we're trying to use them to get something that we feel we need. We think we're free, but don't realize that we're enslaved by the very things that we hope will provide the fulfillment that we're looking for. You could say that we are guilty of a terrible crime against the goodness and glory and beauty and all-satisfying wonder of the God who made us. When we swap him for the things he gives us, It is a form of foolish rebellion that brings a kind of curse on the world as we experience it. Listen, we, we live as if God were meaningless. But when we do, it just makes everything else meaningless. 
So the wise coach here is asking his team, is this it? Because if it is, it's all pointless. But it's not pointless because the point is that behind the pages of Ecclesiastes, there is actually a beyond the sun. Thank you, Josh. Behind this canvas that this teacher paints for us, perhaps ironically, behind this miserable black and white monotone bleakness that he paints, there is a pulsating, high-definition, vibrant colour. And there is someone with a capital S who has come from beyond the sun into this place that we live in. And this coach is helping us to see through the fantasies that we cling to so that we lift our eyes and see the one who is the real good shepherd who comes to us from beyond the sun bringing provocative sharp solid truth and alongside that forgiveness and power Jesus is more than a teacher he's a savior the one who loved us so much despite how our often rebellious pretense to die the death that we deserve to reconcile us to the God that we haven't loved as we should have done it is Jesus who calls us to stop pretending it's Jesus that calls us to stop pretending that we're in charge and to come home to the one who really is in charge. Ecclesiastes reminds us that we all die and that life is this endless repetitive cycle of nothing ever being new. There's nothing new under the sun, but Jesus comes into this futility, submits to it and conquers it he died but conquered death and so we can talk about because of Jesus we can talk about new life new creation Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new the New Testament says everyone who's in Christ is a new creation because of Jesus everything matters you matter. We matter. All the details of our lives matter.
I, I was powerfully struck thinking about this. Jesus is the one who talked about God noticing a sparrow fall to the ground. He talked about noticing when someone gives a cup of cold water to one of his precious children. This is a God who's transcendent and yet everything matters. This teacher never pretends that living under the sun is easy, but he is telling us that there is hope and love because life under the sun is not the only life that there is. Friends, Ecclesiastes is brutal, but it's not designed to make us miserable. It's designed to stop us being shallow. It's designed to shatter our fantasies. It's designed to lead us to joy. It's designed to stop us trying to control things and to come to our Father with childlike confidence. A secular person might try to create and control their life. I think a religious person might try to earn their life. But Ecclesiastes teaches us that life in the end is not about what we gain. Life actually is a gift from God himself to us. And we'll see that appear in a minute. And let me close with this. Jesus agreed with Ecclesiastes and he summed the whole book up well when he said these words. Mark chapter 9, verse 36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. Let's bow and pray, shall we? <clears throat> Father, we're very daunted as we come to this book. It's hard. There's something of mystery about it. It's not an easy book to classify. But how we thank you that you are that one good shepherd. How we thank you that your word isn't plastic. It isn't trivial. It doesn't gloss over the hard realities that we experience in our lives. We thank you that this book is in your word. And Father, we thank you that it points us to Jesus. Your glorious, beautiful powerful son and we thank you that he experienced and submitted to all of the futility that we experience even going to the cross and dying meaningless meaningless utterly meaningless and yet through that death you have conquered death, brought about forgiveness for our sins and given birth to hope 
from beyond the sun. Father God, would you help us this afternoon? Would you, would you lift our horizons? Would you cause faith to be born in our hearts? Would you help us to stop trusting in ourselves? <coughs> to repent and to trust in Jesus. Help us, we pray, for his dear, precious namesake. Amen.